0: Your time is valuable, so thank you for spending it listening to our show. But we want to make it even better, so we need your help. We're hoping you'll spend a few minutes taking our listener survey, courtesy of our sponsor, Nota by m and Bank. Just go to legaltalknetwork.com forward slash survey. Your opinions matter to us, so let us know what you like and what you don't. That's legaltalknetwork.com forward slash survey.
1: Before we begin today's show, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Posh Virtual Receptionists and Axiom. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Dr. Michael Shannisarian, the author of the book, The Valuation of Monetary Damages in Injury Cases. Michael, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
1: First off, Often, I have lawyers coming on to talk about the books they've written, and that isn't exactly your background. Could you tell people a little bit about who you are and uh, what you've built as your career?
0: Sure. By my training, I'm a psychologist. I hold three degrees in psychology, including a PhD degree from Florida State University. And psychologists, they specialize in different areas. My area is rehabilitation. And what I have done over the years is I've established a practice in Florida, called Career Consultants of America, Inc. And over the years, the forensic practice has grown considerably. And I specialize in evaluating damages and forensic cases, specifically injury cases. And I've done that for about 35 to 40 years.
1: And the title of your book, The Valuation of Monetary Damages in Injury Cases, I think that there are plenty of people out there, listeners out there, who don't really know precisely how damages are calculated and what's a monetary damage, what's a non-monetary damage. Can you get into that a little bit and why you chose this as the title for your book?
0: Well, people become injured in many, many ways. It could be a personal injury vis-a-vis a slip and fall or a motor vehicle accident, or it could be a gunshot wound. So personal injury is one big domain of injuries. Another domain is medical malpractice where some procedure may have gone awry and a person has acquired some disabling problems. Uh, Of course, product liability, uh, automobile that may have not been manufactured up to par, or some question about the performance of the vehicle, workers' compensation. There are a number of ways people become injured. And there basically are two parts to any lawsuit, obviously. One is the liability, namely whose fault is it, if there is fault. And then secondly, the damages. And that is where this book comes in. It has to do with evaluating the monetary value of damages. And in any damages assessment, there typically are three broad areas of damages. One is, of course, earning capacity loss. If a person is impaired in their ability to pursue their career, to earn wages, Then they may have recourse for a claim of loss of earning capacity if they can't mitigate their damages. If they can't be retrained, for example, or if the workplace can't be re engineered to accommodate whatever limitation they have, then they may be a candidate to pursue a claim of loss of earning capacity. So that's one broad area. Second broad area is what is that person going to require in the future in terms of medical or other rehabilitation interventions because of their injuries now and going forward for the remainder of their lifetime? Will they need diagnostic testing periodically? Will they need therapies? Will they need pharmaceutical intervention? Will they need surgeries? Will they need attendant care, help in the household because they're impaired to some degree and can't do what they need to do? All of those things are future care needs. We call that in the trade, a life care plan. So that's the second set of damages. First is the earning capacity. Second is the life care plan. And then the third is a more difficult to monetize we call it non-monetary damages, but those damages are the pain and suffering damages that the disabling condition has caused now and over the remainder of the person's lifetime. And the non-monetary damages can be, sometimes they're synonymous with pain and suffering. Uh, those are things like unwelcome lifestyle changes a person has encountered because of their injuries, perhaps sensitivity to disfigurement that affects them psychologically, inability to pursue avocational pursuits or recreational pursuits that they previously enjoyed, Uh, even things like inability to have children naturally, and inability to bond with children. So the non-monetary damages can be very, very broad. Uh, They're more difficult to quantify economically, but those are there. And of course, these three sets of damages are not independent they're dynamic, they interrelate, and when we're assessing the value of a damages, we have an eye towards all three of those different potential areas of damage compensation.
1: Let's put this into kind of human terms. Do you have an example of um a case that you worked in that you know comes to mind where something unusual happened that meant this person couldn't pursue their their career? I'm thinking about the fact that let's say I injure a tendon in my hand and that would that would be difficult. I may not be able to do knitting or crochet or something, but I could pretty much do my job. I may have to wear a brace when I type. However, I have a friend who's a professional violinist and if she had a permanent damage to a tendon in her hand, that would be ruinous to her, to her career. So when you're looking at the individual people, You know, could you just tell us about a case or two that comes to mind that really illustrates these principles put to kind of real-world situations?
0: Sure. Every case is different. And as you said, something that may be a relatively minor injury or disabling problem, the one person could be catastrophic to another person, depending on the context of that individual's life. I'd like to talk about one of the major – the first major cases I had in my career was in 1992 – and it involved a young man. I think he was in his, let's say, late 20s, 27, 28, 29 years old, thereabouts. He had a family. He had been a college athlete. He played uh, fullback at a major uh, academic institution in the southeast. Did not finish college, but he attended college. And after he completed his schooling, he got a job. He worked in construction he wanted to supplement his income for his family. He had two children and he chose to pursue. He was a big guy, obviously a football player and trained his whole life and so forth. And he chose to pursue professional wrestling like we see in the World Wrestling Federation. He took a course, a weekend course. He learned to do some falls and so forth, gymnastics, the tumbling that goes along with that. And then he started his pro wrestling career in concert with his construction career. This was intended just to generate some supplemental Uh, income for his family so he was doing a tag team wrestling match and during the match the opposing team had a move that they called the dropper and they that was their signature move they did it at the end and unfortunately they broke this young man's spine Uh, he became quadriplegic and he pursued a lawsuit for his personal injury that he sustained in this wrestling match Um, he was very impaired And, of course, the damages that he had were in all three of those areas. So the earning capacity, he was unable to pursue his career either as a professional wrestler or as a construction worker. So a lot of economic damages in that arena. The second arena was the future care needs. And you can imagine all the complicated care needs a young person is going to require over their lifespan He needed wheelchairs. He needed modifications to his home. He needed assistance with transportation. He needed catheters. He needed incontinence supplies. A lot of of details. So the life care plan. And then the third area of the damages, the pain and suffering. Again, a young man, two children, unable to be the father that he wanted to be to his children, unable to pick them up, unable to play with them, unable to coach them sports. Uh, Of course, relationship in the intimate area with his wife, A lot of these pain and suffering damages that we learned about as we were assessing his monetary damages. So you can see how these three areas of damages interrelate. They're not discrete. They're not independent. They ebb and flow into one another. And any good damages assessment should consider all three of these areas.
1: So if I am a young lawyer starting out in the field of tort law and a client like this comes into my office Calculating all of these factors feels incredibly daunting, and I think that's one of the reasons you wrote this book, to to walk people through the process. I think often media portrays a lot of these financial awards as though they were kind of plucked from the air, but that's just not so. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about the science behind how we put a number to these things that feel a little amorphous?
0: Yes. The practice of vocational rehabilitation, life care planning, has been around for five or so decades. Uh, there are standards of practice. The field is regulated. There are certain credentials that competent practitioners hold. And, of course, uh, it is heavily regulated. So the standards of practice in conducting these type of assessments have to do first with evaluating available information. And the available information is in many many spheres, and some information may be more pertinent depending on the analysis than other information. So, for example, if someone is alleging that they have sustained a head injury as a result of some type of a trauma that occurred in a personal injury, then we would be interested in knowing what was their track record beforehand. We'd be interested in looking at academic records. We'd be interested in looking at performance appraisals from their job. We'd be interested in looking at the complexity of the work that they performed and the type of impairments that they may or may not have sustained that are impairing their cognitive functioning. So it depends on the type of injury at hand, but of course, generally we're involved, we're we're interested in medical records, we're interested in before and after an incident occurred so we can have a baseline level and understand if a person had any pre-existing problems. Sometimes they're material, sometimes they're not. Sometimes a person may have had, for example, it's not uncommon for somebody, especially someone in middle age or older age, to have pre-existing orthopedic issues, back issues, and they may or may not have had an exacerbation of their pre-existing pathologies vis-a-vis some new trauma. So it's important to understand all of those things, the person's medical history, their earning history, their employment history, and we look at trends. So, for example, has a person had a stable record of employment? Uh, have they been absent from the workplace for different periods of time for, for whatever reason? Have their earnings been consistent over time? Have they had absences from the workplace? What phase of their career development were they in when they became injured? Were they early? Were they later? Were they in a the maintenance phase? Were they in a the withdrawal or decline phase? So the first process involves becoming very, very familiar with the records. And then typically, there is an examination that is conducted. Examination involves a clinical interview where a practitioner is learning more about the person's life. They're presenting problems, impairments they may have had, treatment that they've had. Has it helped them? Has it not helped them? What their goals were beforehand and what their residual capacities are.
1: And is this something that's only being done by the plaintiff's attorney or is the defense team also preparing on their end to see, well, how much do we think the monetary damages in this case would be if we are found at fault?
0: It is absolutely done by both sides, both the defense and the plaintiffs. Typically the plaintiffs will go first, obviously, and they'll uh, conduct their assessment. They'll uh, compute their view of the damages. And then typically the defense lawyers will retain expert witnesses to evaluate the work that the plaintiff experts have done and determine whether or not they believe it's, you know, within the normal limits. Uh, is it understated? Is it overstated? So quite often when experts are retained by defense counsel, they're first retained as consulting experts. And then if they perceive that there are, let's say, overstatements in the damages demanded by the plaintiffs, then the defense lawyers will ask the defense experts to do their own analysis. And they'll do things similar to what I'm describing.
1: And you have been called as an expert witness in literal hundreds of cases, I believe, and both on the plaintiff side and the defense side. Is that correct?
0: I believe about 5,000 cases over the course <laughs> of my career. And my practice is very evenly split between defense and plaintiff retentions.
1: And for you, is the process somewhat. Similar in both cases, or do you find different things are asked of you as an expert witness by one side rather than the other?
0: It's quite similar. One difference is if you're retained by plaintiff counsel, then you do have access to consult directly with the plaintiffs treating doctors. And you don't you do not have that opportunity when you're when you're retained by defense counsel. That would be inappropriate to do, it'd be unethical to do. So you don't have that opportunity. But otherwise, the processes are generally the same. You review the same records, you conduct the same type of interview, you administer standardized tests. And these examinations the testing is typically intelligence or IQ tests, personality measures, and occupational interest inventories. And of course, you conduct your consultations and you conduct the research that you need to formulate the foundation for your opinion. So apart from that, the processes are quite similar.
1: So when you, you are speaking to other people in this industry, be it insurance agencies or attorneys who are well-versed in this form of law, you can use a certain vocabulary and they'll understand what you mean. But as we've already heard so far, these are very complex processes. So when you are asked to explain to a jury, why did you come to this number, um, what is the case for additional pain and suffering, things like that, what do you find most helpful in communicating to a jury?
0: What's helpful is to start with the science of the profession and to speak in lay terms in terms of how the opinion was developed, how it evolved, the contributors to the opinion, the research that was done, and basically to help understand from a lay perspective how the whole process evolved and how the opinions were generated.
1: Well, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from one of our sponsors. And when we return, I'll be asking Dr. Shannisarian about some of the more special cases. As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls so you never miss an opportunity. And the Posh app lets you control when your receptionist steps in. So if you can't answer, Posh can. And if you've got it, Posh is just a tap away. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at Posh.com. You're no stranger to compromise. You're a lawyer. But getting the legal team you need is a compromise you shouldn't have to make like when you have to invest in hiring a full-time generalist lawyer when you need a highly specialized IP counsel, or when you don't want to bring in your external law firm with their partner-level price tag. Axiom can help you match the right legal resource to the right matter at the right cost for the right duration. No legal leader should compromise their high standards, and with Axiom, you don't have to. Learn more at axiomlaw.com slash ABA. Welcome back to this episode of the Modern Law Library. I'm still here with Dr. Michael Shannisarian, talking about his book, The Valuation of Monetary Damages in Injury Cases. Now, Michael, there are some times when it is going to be more difficult to make these judgments. And one of those areas is when this injury has happened to a child or even an, an infant in the case of, say, a medical malpractice trial that has impacted a, a newborn. How Can you then look at earning capacity claims or, you know, what it will cost to support this infant for the rest of their life? You don't have any past pay periods to look at. What do you do in those kinds of cases?
0: Pediatric cases are often the most difficult or challenging cases that we have for the reason that you're mentioning. We don't have a baseline to look at. If it's an older child, let's say a child who maybe is in the fifth grade, sixth grade, middle school, even early high school years, we do have some evidence that we can fall back on and evaluate. We can look at scholastic performance. We can look at performance on standardized tests. We can look at the type of, let's say, if it's an older child, their occupational interests or their stated goals. So there are some cases where we do have some baseline data that we can refer back to. And of course, whatever information we do have, we use that. However, as you're mentioning, there are cases where there's a incident at birth that occurred and a child is catastrophically disabled, and we don't have any baseline information. So the standards of practice in those types of cases, we we tend to use the adage or apply the adage, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. And there is longitudinal research support that Basically, supports that premise. So, we look at the parents or we look at the family or the caregivers who are raising the child. We look at their academic achievements. We look at their educational achievements. There's a lot of evidence in the literature that many reasons for using this method are, are in order, including values being transmitted by the people who are closest to the child, the resources that the family or the caregivers have, the role models that they provide the children. All of those things are reasons that. Again, the longitudinal research supports the premise that the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. If there are other siblings, perhaps older siblings, that the child has, then, of course, we'll use that as another metric in our analysis. But basically, it's using whatever evidence we have that the child may or may not have had an opportunity to create independently, along with this information about the unit, the caregiver unit, the family unit in which the child is being and will be raised in the future. Also, you mentioned how do we plan for future needs for the child? Well, that's another challenge we have that falls into the life care plan situation. And often what we do, we develop multiple scenarios. So, for example, if we have a child that may or may not be able to live independently when he or she is an adult, we will have different options built into their future care when they become of adult age we may have things for example like an in-home option where attendant cares are pre- attendant caregivers are present we may have an institutional setting option we may have an adult congregate living facility option we might have multiple options to anticipate that we don't have a crystal ball we don't necessarily can't say with 100% certainty one option is going to happen or the other option is going to happen because there's so many unknowns when you're dealing with a newborn But we try to look at reasonable contingencies and offer the triers of fact and others involved in the decision-making options from which they can choose.
1: And is this a situation where these people would potentially have, let's say, a second bite at the apple when it comes to, oh, actually, things went worse than we thought, and it turns out you know there are more needs than we had anticipated? Or is this something that you really do need to come up with? you know, when the f- case is first heard? It's important
0: to come up with different scenarios so that we can anticipate, for example, a best case scenario, a worst case scenario uh, that's done often in life care planning. And hence, we come up with a range that the people who are interested in, in settling the case or trying the case can refer to when computing the overall damages.
1: When you talk about what you do to people you meet, what are some common misperceptions you hear people talk about when it comes to tort trials, tort awards. Uh, Certainly there have been pushes before for tort reform. What are some common misconceptions that you see the general public having about cases like this?
0: I think it's often difficult for jurors to see a child who's looking healthy, um, smiling, able to interact, to truly perceive the the depth of needs that that child may have, and they may look at the child and say, well, there's a young child there, they're sitting in a wheelchair, but to understand the tremendous amount of care that that child requires currently and will continue to require in the future and the complexity of the interventions that will be necessary as a child ages, So for example, if a child is wheelchair bound, unable to ambulate independently, that brings up secondary problems when they get older. Vascular problems, problems with orthopedic issues, they may develop uh, scoliosis. Those type of medical problems are difficult to anticipate when you're just looking at the child in the here and the now. So one of the challenges that we have is to explain the evolution um, of problems as a child becomes older. Another common issue, for example, might be in an amputation case of a child. And the child, they have yet to reach skeletal maturity. And we have to anticipate what's gonna happen to a five-year-old child who, for example, sustained a lower extremity amputation as they get older and they get bigger and their bones grow in five years, 10 years, 15 years. And what the implications are orthopedically and what the different types of prosthesis needs they're going to have How are those going to be complicated over time? So in an orthopedic case, we have to educate everybody who's involved in in valuing the monetary damages, what these other needs that may be hidden currently, how are they going to manifest in the future and how that's going to translate into interventions and, of course, monetary values.
1: And when you're dealing with someone who is not a child, but is in, say, the middle of their career or even towards the end of their career, and they have spent a life building a certain profession and thinking of themselves and their self-image in a certain way, and then something catastrophic happens and they need to, to rethink this, when you are speaking to people about vocational rehabilitation, what are the sorts of messages you can give them uh, when it comes to coming back or building a different kind of life, even if it's you know less earning capacity, perhaps?
0: We feel that all work has value and work is therapeutic in one's rehabilitation. Uh, it helps you to get out of your home. It helps you to mix with other people, to interact with other people. It is a source of self-esteem, self-pride. So even if people are unable to Pursue their former career because of injuries, we attempt to help them identify other types of careers that will be satisfying to them. Job satisfaction is very important to us, and having a purpose in your life is very important. Often, we can accomplish that through the testing that we administer, and that is a reason that we administer a battery of tests as part of the evaluation process. So, we administer tests to develop, to measure someone's intelligence so we can look at their strengths, their weaknesses. We administer occupational interest tests so we can identify preferences, things people like or don't like, and we administer personality measures so that we can match people well with different careers. Some people, for example, are introverted. Uh, some are extroverted. Some people do well in situations where there's a lot of group interaction. Other people don't. Some people are very creative. So we try to understand what are their their individual preferences, their personality characteristics so that we can identify for them alternate occupations that would promise them job satisfaction.
1: Do you have any examples of some success stories or or real changes that happened in someone's life, but they were able to pursue an alternate occupation?
0: Sure. So we have people who may have a lot of knowledge and in a different industry. um, We've had people, for example, in the construction industry who were contractors who uh, developed a lot of inform- a lot of knowledge about things like estimating labor and material costs, uh, things like reading blueprints, um, advanced skills in project management, multi-site project management. Part of the, what we assess or evaluate are, are what we call transferable skills. So we assess a, a, an individual's work history. We determine the type of skills that they have developed, and we determine how those skills may transfer to different types of occupations. So we've had people who have been, as I mentioned, contractors in the construction industry. They incur an injury that prevents them from, let's say, walking on hazardous construction sites, climbing ladders like they had to, contorting their body to construct inspections and so forth, but they have these transferable skills. So we try to determine how can those skills be transferred to another work work environment that is compatible with their residual functional capacities. So we'll look at things, for example, such as computer-assisted drafting, which would be in a, in a controlled environment, it would be in an office environment, and they would be using their knowledge from construction, from sourcing materials, and using their residual abilities in a job that still provides them satisfaction and perhaps even comparable earnings.
1: And as a psychologist, how would you advise lawyers talk to clients in cases like this uh, when it comes to helping them envision a new future. It's going to be different than the one that they had thought they were going to have. But, you know, often physical injuries are only one side and and it's a real psychological blow to many people to rethink their self-image even. Uh, How can lawyers both compassionately and productively, discuss these things with their clients?
0: I think starting with what I mentioned before, the premise that all work has value. And even though you may have sustained an injury that is very significant, it doesn't mean that your life is over. Life does go on. And there are other avenues in the workplace that can still provide job satisfaction. And also to encourage the person to think of what they still have going for them, the capacities that are intact that they may have. The aspirations that could still be realized, maybe not in whole, but at least in part, and perhaps the value that, and inspiration that they can bring other people, including those who are close to them, loved ones, friends, and so forth, by not giving up and uh, making the most of what you do have residually.
1: We're going to take another break to hear a word from sponsor, but when we come back, we'll be talking more about how Dr. Shanisarian decided to structure his manual, The Valuation of Monetary Damages and in Injury Cases. In a world that's constantly changing, the law and how it's practiced must also evolve to keep up with those changes. The ABA Journal's Asked and Answered podcast dives into the compelling stories surrounding lawyers' personal and professional lives. I'm your host, Stephanie Francis Ward, and each month I bring on a new guest to explore their involvement with our dynamic legal ecosystem. For the stories that bring the law to life, follow the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Welcome back. We're still speaking to Dr. Michael Shannisarian. And a question I had, Michael, is when you were sitting down to come up with the format of this book, this is not the first book you've written. uh, What were your goals in how you were going to lay out this book to be most useful to its readers? And who did you think of as your audience?
0: Well, the primary audience basically are expert witnesses like myself, as well as attorneys, who are trying to value damages in injury cases. Other parties who I believe would have a strong interest in this book would include people such as allied experts, like economists, financial experts, who are actually doing the number computations and the calculations. It's helpful for them to know how these, the, the predicate for the work has been arrived at scientifically. It gives them more credibility as well. Another group would be insurance adjusters. These are the people who defense lawyers are reporting to. And the insurance adjusters, of course, have the power to settle a case or determine what the value of the case is. So if they had more insight into how experts conduct these methodological evaluations, it would benefit them as well. Um, I think law school students who are aspiring to become tort lawyers, obviously, The more knowledge you have about how these damages are computed, the better you can do your job. I believe there are some sophisticated plaintiffs who have a real interest in knowing how their damages are computed. They would have an interest in this kind of work. So those are the primary audiences that I envisioned when I was writing the book. And I structured the book in four different sections, so to speak. The first section had to do with the overall concept of monetary damages and injury cases. The concept, of course, in terms of the two areas I, I preliminarily mentioned, loss of earning capacity, how are, how is that done? What does that mean now and in the future? And then the future care needs, the concept. So we start with that because that is the basic, that is the foundation information that is necessary to proceed with understanding the other parts of the book. So that's number one. Part two of the book has to do with the kind of the nuts and bolts methodologically. I gave a high-level overview before starting with records, but this part of the book gets into the real nitty-gritty details. What records do you need to look at and what specific details do you glean from those? Subject-specific factors. What are important subject-specific factors to consider and how do you do that? How is an examination conducted? What are the protocols, both in terms of the clinical interview, what type of information do you obtain, and then the testing. How do you determine what battery is important to administer? How do you interpret the test results? How do you integrate that information and synthesize it with everything else? The research you need to conduct. All of that is fodder for the second part of the book. Then the third part of the book gets into life care plans. And the life care plans, there's there's a chapter that speaks to adult life care plans. There's a chapter that speaks to pediatric life care plans. There's a chapter that speaks to international life care plans. And what I've been finding over the years, and I live in Florida where there's a lot of visitors from all over the world, tourists from all over the world, sometimes they become injured in Florida and they live in another place. So the life care planning is not just you know, specific to what are their care needs here, but what are their care needs going to be in in their locale? So the third section gets in-depth in different types of life care plans and the nuances depending on the life care plan you're developing. And the final part of the book, the part four of the book, has to do with special considerations. And that includes things like presenting testimony, what is the best way to make technical points salient to lay people, Uh, It gets into things such as the Dalbert challenges, um, how to basically pursue a Daubert challenge when it is merited, and how to survive a Daubert challenge when you feel that it's unjust. So that is how I developed the book. I tried to anticipate the audiences and what I felt would be most pertinent to each of those audiences that I identified.
1: And just to pick up on something you mentioned in part four, Dow Bear challenges. Could you tell my listeners a little bit about what a Dow Bear challenge is?
0: A Dow Bear challenge is where an opposing lawyer is suggesting that there are deficits in an expert's analysis, and the deficits are so egregious that the experts should, in part or in whole, be prohibited from providing their testimony.
1: Can you provide me an example of, you know, when someone might launch a Dove Do- Bear challenge? Um, would they be questioning the person's credentials or would they be providing an opposing view from a member of the same field? What, what would be an example of someone who faces one of these challenges?
0: Well, it could be, as you mentioned, the credentialing issue that uh, the, the lawyer could, could argue that the expert is not qualified to render the opinions that he or she authored. It could be a methodological issue that the information presented, for example, if it's in a life care plan, wasn't sufficiently researched, or that the databases referenced were not uh, current, they were old databases, uh, prices were inflated, or prices were understated, or the person for perhaps uh, misinterpreted a test that is being relied upon and presenting opinions. It, it really could be any one or more source of fault that is being alleged that an expert should be prohibited from testifying or the testimony should be limited because of serious methodological credentialing, different problems that emerged in analysis that make it not correct.
1: Uh, Another thing that you had in your book that I I don't think we've mentioned yet is you include a number of sample documents. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about your appendices and why you included Uh, sample letters, things of that nature.
0: One of my aims was to make the book very pragmatic for the different audiences. So I realized that lawyers will be probably, lawyers and experts will probably be the primary consumers of the book. Uh, I wanted them to have forms that they could rely on to help facilitate analyses. I have a lot of sample cases. I have case studies that amplify salient points that I wanted to make in the text. So, for example, I'll have a sample life care plan for a pediatric patient. And I also have commentary on how I developed the different areas of discussion and how I'm presenting different areas of damages. I felt that having real life cases, of course, information is disguised, but I felt that having real life cases would make the book more meaningful and it would supplement the instructional text that I provided. So, I would say about uh, probably a quarter of the book has to do with case studies, examples, forms, ideas for future research. Very practical, very pragmatic information.
1: And I think it is easy to be put off by sort of the clinical edge of a lot of these calculations. And you're thinking, oh, but this is a human being's life. And it really shows, I think, uh, when you bring in these case studies, that yes, these are very clinical. They may seem cold-blooded calculations, but they are intended to help and assist these human beings. When you first started working as an expert witness in these cases, was there something that surprised you or that you learned as you continued to participate in 5,000 different cases uh, when there have been injuries like this?
0: Well, when you're starting out, it can be very daunting, especially when you're a young practitioner. Um, and, look, and in getting involved in some of these catastrophic cases, I remember one of the uh, first cases I had had to do with a young person, probably 21, 22 years old, who was involved in a motor vehicle accident. He was a passenger in a car that struck a tree and the uh, vehicle became inflamed. So he had a lot of different types of injuries. He had really serious burn injuries that were t- disfiguring on his face. I believe two of his limbs were amputated. He was non-ambulatory, could not walk. I think it was an arm and a leg that he lost. And he, unfortunately, he became very psychologically distressed because of the disfigurement and all of these changes at such a young age. So. And when you're starting out in this profession, either as a lawyer or as an expert, it can be very daunting when you're confronted with the magnitude, especially of these catastrophic cases. But yet as a professional, you have to appreciate that your job is to try to be as objective as possible. And as an expert witness, we're doing everybody a disservice if we get too emotionally involved in a case. Uh, Of course, there is a human element, as you're mentioning, You have to be sensitive to the psychological aspects, the unwelcome lifestyle changes, the upheaval a person has had not only in their lives, but people close to them, friends, family members, and how that is going to affect them. Those are all damages that are necessary to capture in that third sphere, the non-monetary sphere. But they also do carry over into the first two spheres that I mentioned, the earning capacity and the future care needs. So, of course, we are sensitive to the catastrophic changes a person has encountered, especially in these really devastating injuries. But if we lose our objectivity, then we're not helping that person. We're not helping anybody, including the triers of fact, and put a value, placing a value on the damages, which really is what our job is to do.
1: The term ambulance chasers was actually created to talk about, you know, attorneys who do injury cases like this. And full disclosure, uh, my father did a number of tort cases where he was trying to get damages for people who had suffered injuries like this. And, you know, it—it it is actually, when you are successful, it can be so impactful for not just the individual, but the family that you were able to make sure that they had more security going forward in the future. And when my father passed away, people attended his wake to tell us, thank you so much. Your father helped us after this or that injury. Have there been times when you've encountered someone years later and were able to find out how they've been able to go forward after going through this injury case process?
0: Yes, there have been. And in fact, I did conduct a longitudinal study several years ago. I was developing an instrument called the Earning Capacity Assessment Form, which is a validated instrument. And I wanted to longitudinally try to track these people who we evaluated, and I did encounter uh, a lot of what you're describing. Uh, People were grateful for the valuation, and what we try to do in all cases is try to objectively assess the damages in a case, applying the science of the profession, and the more we can do that, the more true we can be to all parties who are involved, defense, plaintiff, all parties, including the triers of facts. So that is really how we view our responsibility as experts in evaluating damages.
1: Well, Dr. Sanisarian, so thank you so much for appearing on this episode of the Modern Law Library. If people were interested in finding out more about you or in picking up the book, The Valuation of Monetary Damages and Injury Cases, where could they go?
0: The ABA bookstore uh, basically is the best place to go. And I believe they do have a promo code for lawyers who are members of the ABA.
1: And we will provide that promo code in the show notes and on our website at abajournal.com books. Thank you to Dr. Janisarian and thank you to you, my listeners, for joining us for this episode. If you had any comments, questions, or recommendations for future authors to feature, please reach out to us at books at abajournal.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service.